We are way too soon finishing the book of Ruth today. And I was, this morning I was frustrated with myself because I'm just thinking, you know, you're in charge. You can preach as long as you want to on a book. But then I was, I was mindful that we're, what we're doing is we're covering a lot of narratives this year. And uh, we want to hit highlights of them all. You know, like, you know, in two weeks we're starting Jonah. And that's going to be rich. And then the life of David, that's going to be so rich. And we hit Moses. We've hit so many of these high points. And I just want to encourage you to be sure that you're digging into the book of Ruth. Um, you know, we're just scratching the surface on this. You know, and what we're talking about is getting more. And we understand that Jesus has already given us all that, that we need for salvation and life. His, his word is true. But what we're talking about, we're talking about getting more. We're, we're talking getting more of what we already have in Christ. See, the more you're like Jesus, the more you're walking with Jesus, the more of his blessings of grace and mercy and hope that you get. And so the further you are away from the Lord, the further you are away from enjoying those benefits. And those benefits are there in as much as we are walking by faith and walking with the Lord. And, and so when we're talking about this, this grace and this mercy and hope, all this comes from the love of God. The love of God that is very real. Aren't you glad God did not give us a theoretical love, theoretical grace or mercy or hope's real? And so we're looking at the book of Ruth, which is about real people in a real world with real problems under the sovereign providential care of a real God who gives more grace, mercy, and hope. This morning, we're going to talk about hope, and we're going to look at Ruth, and, and why it is the book of Ruth is called the book of Ruth. If you've got your Bible, and I hope that you do, take it out and go with me real quick to the book of Ruth, and let's do some reminding. Let's first of all remember that it's not the book of Naomi, although it could have been. Look in chapter 1 of Ruth 1. You'll remember where we began a couple of weeks ago, and we made the case that, you know, the thing's about Naomi. Uh, this is the woman who, though uh, she was bitter and hurting and empty, returned empty, uh, yet it was her faith, it was her sharing her faith that led Ruth to have faith in God and to follow her. But we realized, eh, that probably isn't right. Maybe it's Boaz. And so go to chapter 2. And you'll remember last week, we walked through chapter 2, chapter 3, and the first part of chapter 4. And we made the case that the book of Boaz, which, by the way, sounds like a really cool name, book of Boaz, right? That maybe that could be the name of the book. I mean, after all, he's the, the Goel, the Hebrew term there for, for the Redeemer, the kinsman Redeemer. This is the Christ-like figure, and maybe it should be called that. But here's what we'll learn today. The book of Ruth is rightly named. This is about this Moabite woman who God used in so many miraculous ways, it's hard to even to consider, even in these sermons, even in a year's worth of sermons. What we'll see today is the book of Ruth actually ties the entire Bible together. What's amazing is that we know that the Bible is the infallible, inerrant Word of God. We know, and we'll see today, there's no way a human being could have written this. This is not, this is not man's Word about God. This is God's Word to man. And we're going to see the miraculous way in which God has written His Word and tied all these, these ultimate realities together. And so today, as we're talking about hope, I want to remind you, you are hardwired for hope. This morning, as you sit here listening, and I hope you're listening, you're hoping in something. And, and I want to remind you that, that whatever you have placed your faith in determines the strength of your hope. What you have faith in determines your hope. 
So whatever you're believing in, whatever you're counting on, whatever you're trusting in, that is what will define your hope. And so whatever is the object of your faith, that will determine the strength of your hope. And so this morning, I want to try to convince you to make Jesus Christ the object of your faith. Again, everybody in this room is living by faith in something. And that faith, the object of your faith, is determining right now the strength of your hope. You're hardwired for hope, so you have hope. And all of it is based on the object of your faith. I want to, I want to try to convince you today to make Jesus Christ the object of your faith. Now, I know there's some of you who are disciples of Jesus already, and so you're thinking, oh, good, glad we came this morning. I don't have to listen anymore. I can focus on my fantasy football team. I can think about what we're going to eat for lunch. I can figure out, you know, all the things the kids have done wrong so far this weekend and what we're going to do to punish them late. You know, all the things that, you know, that you could possibly don't do any of that. Because here's what I want to tell you who are disciples of Jesus. Here's what I want to try to do. I want to try to help you see whether or not, not whether or not you're saved, whether or not Jesus Christ is your actual functional Savior. Functional Savior. Your, your functional Savior uh, is, is what drives your hope. Your functional Savior. Let me, let me give you a quick definition here, okay? A functional Savior is anything a person depends on to give them hope and their reason for living. The functional Savior. As I've already said, everybody in this room is living by faith, and you have hope. Whatever is the object of your faith, that will determine the strength of your hope. You have a functional Savior. You, ha- you are placing your faith in something, and whatever that is will determine your hope. Now, again, some of you are disciples of Jesus, some of you are not, but what I want to try to convince you to do today is to make Jesus Christ your functional Savior, to make Him the object of your faith. Now, some of you, again, you say, well, I am a Christian. I, I get that. But is, is He the reason why you live? Is He your driving purpose? Is He really the source of your hope? Because what we're tempted to do, all of us are tempted to do, and and those who are without Christ do by nature, because again, we're all hardwired for hope, we're all going to have faith in something, is that we're tempted to put our faith in a good thing. For instance, some of you are putting your faith in your family. Not a bad thing. Family is a very good thing. But here's the thing. If your faith is the purpose, I'm sorry, if your family is the purpose of your life, your hope is very weak. Because sooner or later, your family's going to fail. Sooner or later, your marriage isn't going to be great. Sooner or later, your kids are not going to be great. Your parents aren't going to be great. And so when that happens, your hope is going to be diminished. Some of you, it's your health. Some of you, some of you it's your good looks. See, I have no temptation whatsoever to put my faith in my good looks. It's just an advantage of mine. But some of you are very good-looking people. Some of you are very healthy. And I just want to say to you, gravity works. Amen. And what you got to understand is, sooner or later, if that's where, if, you're, if your faith is in your health and your good looks, then that's, 
That's, your hope is there, and your, your, your hope is only as strong as the, faith, as, your, as the object of your faith. For some of you, it's in work. It's in your success. So long as you're doing great at work, as long as you're successful, or your kids are successful, then you're successful. Uh, some of you, it's in friendships. As long as I've got friends, as long as I've got people around me, as long as I'm never bored, as long as I've got people that give me attention, then, then I'm good. That's your, that's, the, that's your functional Savior. Now, again, the problem with that is all those good things I listed, all of them are good. You can't keep any of them. Sooner or later, they will all fail. And your hope, and you're hardwired for hope, your hope is only as strong as the object of your faith. Fill in this blank. As long as I have blank, I'm okay. Be honest with yourself for a minute. As long as I have you fill in the blank, I'm okay. If that blank is not filled with Jesus Christ, the object of your faith is weak, so is your hope. I want to compel you, I want to beg you today to make Jesus Christ your functional Savior. To make Him the one that you say, as long as I have Jesus, now, some of you, your, your faith is in something very sinful. What gives you strength is something that debilitates you, that disrespects God, disrespects other human beings. It's very easy to spot. It's wrong. Some of you, it's, it's a distraction. Your hope is in just a distraction. You know, it's, it's, it's whether or not I get a, a single win in, you know, Fortnite or my kids win. If, you know, some of you, you're thrilled today. I get it. Kentucky has, has now won back-to-back against ranked competition. I get it. I mean, it's great. But if that's your hope, if your hope is in Kentucky football, again, this is why I'm so blessed. I'm never tempted as an Andy fan to have that kind of an idol. Fails all the time, Right? And what I want to convince you of is everything, everything other than Jesus is going to fail. Everything. And you're hardwired for hope. And you have faith in something that's your functional Savior. And whatever that object of your faith is, that's going to determine your hope. Your hope is only as strong as the object of your faith. There is no one stronger than Jesus. Today, I want to challenge us to make Jesus the object of our faith, the source of our hope, our functional Savior. He is the ultimate hope. He is the only one who saves. He is the only one who gives hope that does not disappoint. The scripture that we read from from Romans 5, Jesus Christ alone can meet that job description. And so what we see in Ruth is, is she reveals to us who Jesus is, what Jesus has done, how it is and why it is that Jesus alone can save and give us hope uh, that our soul needs. Uh, if you've got your Bible, and I hope that you do, turn with me now. Let's go to Ruth chapter 4. Kaylee's going to read for us verses 15 through 17. This is what they were saying about Naomi after Ruth had provided rescue. Let's all stand together again in honor of God's Word. We're in Ruth chapter 4. We're finishing this series. We're focusing on why the book of Ruth is called the book of Ruth. Uh, She has already provided all that was necessary for Naomi's salvation. So listen what the people are saying now about Naomi. If you would, Katie, read that for us. He shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age. 
For your daughter-in-law who loves you, who is more to you than seven sons, has given birth to him. Then Naomi took the child and laid him on her lap and became his nurse. And the woman of the neighborhood gave him a name, saying, A son has been born to Naomi. They named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord remains forever. Amen? Amen. Thank you, Kaylee. Y'all would be seated. Okay, so what do we know about Ruth? Let's review. What do we know about Ruth? Several things, three things I want to point out to you. First of all, this. She was a refugee from Moab. She was a refugee. Now, as soon as you hear that word, some of you immediately go into political mode. Because this word has become a political term in our culture, along with other terms. And it's important to remember the human element of this term. Living Hope Alone, along with other congregations like us, have been doing something, Living Hope for over 40 years now, uh, we have spent, we've given over $10 million in the last 40 years to get the gospel to people who never had access to them before. So there are countries today where the gospel has not gone, and something amazing is happening. Those people that we couldn't get to, God is now getting them to us. We now have a city filled with refugees. They come from places we could, we could never have gotten to before. We have a place on the planet where we have missionary partners where refugees are pouring through. Look at this picture. It's pretty cool. This is a former Muslim baptizing a former Muslim in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit because they've both become disciples of Jesus Christ. How cool is that? This happened three times yesterday. Amen. Refugees are finding Jesus Christ. Uh, one of our partners wrote this. I'm just going to read it. To be thankful for a mother and daughter who just smuggled into a country, that doesn't make sense. Think about Ruth, Naomi, Ruth a mother, a daughter. However, we must know the full story. Michael, that's not his name, by the way. Michael was smuggled here this year, and three months ago he believed in Jesus and was baptized. Since then, he has been discipled by Henry. That's not his real name. Michael cried every time, uh, cried every time when talking about being separated from his wife and his daughter. Well, last night, his wife and daughter finally made it to him. Reality check. The wife and small daughter have been alone for months and smuggled in an extremely dangerous situation. These are the choices made every day that most in the Western world, ourselves included, will never have to make. At last reunited, the family rejoiced. However, the best part was to come. For four hours, Michael and Henry sit in a cafe talking with his wife about Jesus. Henry explained his pure joy and excitement when sharing with us that she believed. So now, a young family begins a new journey as followers of Christ. Their road will not be easy. Living in an overcrowded refugee camp meant for 3,000, yet housing 10,000. Pray for Michael and his wife and daughter. These are refugees. They... They were in a situation that was so bad that they would rather almost die than have to stay there. Now, let me tell you something about Ruth. Ruth was a refugee by choice. 
She could have stayed home. She had family. She had friends. She had everything she needed back in Moab. She instead chose to be a refugee. And, and this was courageous because she could have been murdered. She could have been attacked. As a matter of fact, you go back and look in uh, Ruth chapter 1. Remember what Boaz said, stay close to my working men. Stay close to my working ladies. Why? Because she could have easily been ravaged. So here's this woman who had amazing courage. She made an amazing sacrifice. She had to leave her home. What did she do? Think about it. She gave up family, friends, everything she ever knew. She gave it all up. And what did she do? She showed her confidence in the Lord. So, first of all, what do we know about Ruth? She was a refugee from Moab. Secondly, she was a faithful friend. Friend, guys, listen. We all need a Ruth in our life. And we all need to be a Ruth. It's great if you come here to worship. I'm so glad you do. Because when you're here, you know, I was talking to a family that, that's moving away, and they're just, tears are falling, you know, this morning. And they said, we're going to miss our church more than anything, because every week we sing songs of truth where the Bible preached to us where we're going. We don't know if there's a church like this. And I said, God will provide, God will provide. I'm glad that you're here, but let me tell you something. If you don't have Christian friends that you see and you spend time with that are praying for you and that you're praying with in a small group, there's a big part of your, of your Christian walk that's missing. I want to encourage you to have a roof, to be a roof. Third thing we know, she was a willing servant. She gave up her life to give Naomi life. So what do we see? I think we're, we're playing hide-and-seek and catch in church today. I feel like I'm at a Pentecostal church. People are running the aisle. Remember, if you start speaking in tongues, we will have to have an interpreter. So, uh, And that's okay if you do. I'm not going to judge you. I'm just trying to give you ground rules right now, all right? So three things about Ruth. All right? She was a refugee by choice. She, she made great sacrifice. She was a faithful friend. Jesus Christ was a refugee by choice. He left the comforts of heaven to come to a place he was not wanted to give his life so we could have life. He is the closest friend you will ever have. He is so good. And he did all of this at great sacrifice of himself. Jesus gives us more hope. And the more we believe in Him, the more we trust in Him, the more hope that we have. So those who get more hope, there's three things they know. We're going to see in the text. The first one is this. They know the Savior of God. To know Jesus is to know the Savior of God. Now, Ruth is like our Savior, Jesus Christ. Let me show you how. So go back to verse 13. So Boaz took Ruth. She became pregnant. She, she bore a son. So Ruth gave her life to Boaz to make a new life for Naomi. This is, what God, this is what Jesus did with the Father. He gave his life and obeyed even unto death so that we could have life. Ruth trusted and gave her life to Boaz and obeyed him. She sacrificed herself so that Naomi could have life. What did Jesus do for us? This one of whom God the Father said, with him I am well pleased. He obeyed the Father unto death. Now, what did, what did Boaz do for Ruth? He raised her up. He raised her up and, and provided her a new name, a new place. What did God do? 
after the, after the son had died, what did the father do? He raised him up. He resurrected him to new life. Why? So that we could have new life. So this is what God has done with Ruth. So we see here the father and the son. But what I want you to notice is the, the image here, the picture, the typology of the Holy Spirit in Obed. Look in verse 14. This verse is not describing Ruth. This verse is not describing Boaz. This verse is describing Obed. Then the woman said to Naomi, Blessed be the Lord who has not left you this day without a Redeemer, and may His name be renowned in Israel. Now look, Naomi was hopeless. She could not marry. She could not work. She could not own the land to provide for herself as a woman. She was hopeless. She was desolate. But now, because of Ruth, because of Boaz, because of Obed, her life has changed. She now has new life. She has a future. She has been redeemed. And this is what Jesus did for us. We were without hope in this world. We could not earn our way to God. We, we, could not, we could not do anything to change the condition of our heart. We could not do anything to alter our reality. We needed someone. We needed an outsider. We needed a refugee with authority to come and to love us and to sacrifice for us. And, and that's what Jesus has done. Now, why did he do that? One simple reason. It's not because we deserve it. not because we have earned it. One reason. Love. Write it down. Those who get more hope know the love of God. What, did, what, did, what happened in, in, in Naomi's life? Verse 15. He shall, speaking of Obed, be to you a restorer of life. A restorer of life. This is an important word in the book of Ruth. It's a, it's a Hebrew word, shub. Not the first time it showed up. As a matter of fact, this word shub, this restore, this remember, it's like bookends in the book of Ruth. It showed up the first time in chapter 1, verse 21. Look back there real quick. In Ruth 1, 21, we see the word shub, but it has application in a completely different sense. But the word is there, and the author put it there for a literary purpose. I went away full, and the Lord has brought me back, restored me, shub me, empty. So the book begins with a return, a shub, to emptiness. But that's not how it ends. Look in verse 15 of Ruth chapter 4. He shall to be not a restorer of emptiness, but a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age. So, so what's happened here? Well, first understand that the real sense of what, what the writer of Ruth is doing is showing us the, the power of God in, in our own situation. We were empty. We were broken. Remember when, remember when Naomi got back in chapter 1? Remember what she, she said, don't call me Naomi. What did she say call her? Mara. What does that mean? Bitter. We were like Naomi. We were broken. Our hearts were bitter. We were empty. We could not redeem ourselves. We couldn't rescue ourselves. We couldn't earn our own way. But once the rescuer had come, Jesus Christ, now we have one that has been provided for us. 
And, and, and what I want you to see is the triune nature of God. So here, Boaz is like the Father, Ruth is like the Son, and Obed is like the Holy Spirit. All three are present in our salvation. For the praise of the Father, the Son has come to make sacrifice so that we can be bought, so that we can have new life. And this life is a sustaining life. There is a power that is at work that gives us new life. That is the Holy Spirit of God. The Holy Spirit came from Jesus to give new life to those restored by grace, to give new life and to feel and to feel. Look at Ephesians chapter 1. You need to know this one. In Him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in Him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. Look at it. Who is the guarantee of our inheritance until until we acquire possession of it to the praise of His glory. Think about Naomi. Because Obed was born, she now has a future. She now has someone who's going to care for her all the way through life, guide her all through life, fill her life until she dies. This is what the Spirit of God does. He gives us new life. He fills our life. And He guides us all the way through life. He is our inheritance. He's the promise of the inheritance that is to come. And then it goes back to Ruth. Look back at verse 15. So He's talking about the Holy Spirit. He's talking about Obed. And then the writer switches it. For your daughter-in-law. Now this, what we're about to read, we don't, we don't get it. We don't understand this culture. What they're saying right here would be ridiculous in the ears of the first-time reader. So what are they saying about Ruth? For your daughter-in-law, who loves you, who is more to you than seven sons has given birth to him. Now, in this culture, sons were preferred. Why? Because they had power. They could pass the name on. They could own property. They had the capacity to provide. Women did not. Now, what was the number of sons they said? What was the number there? The number seven. Now, in biblical imagery, what does the number seven stand for? Perfection. So what are they saying? They're saying, Naomi, Ruth is worth more to you than the perfect family. Think about that. Think about what we've been thinking this morning. If more of you means less of me, take everything. I'd rather have Jesus than anything this world affords today. Either you believe it or you don't. When I asked you before, if I've got blank, I'm okay. I would imagine that Naomi, when she first got back to Bethlehem, would have said, if I could just have seven sons, then I'd be okay. And what are the women saying to her? No, 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 no. You have something worth more valuable than seven times. Your Redeemer, your Rescuer, Ruth, has provided for you more than any perfect family could have ever provided for you. You have been given all that you could have ever wanted, and that's exactly what Jesus has done for us. We talk about three circles here. If you're new here, let me show you something. Everyone knows that we are, this world is not as it should be. God's design has been corrupted, and we've all sinned, and there's brokenness. And so we're like Naomi. We are born into a world that makes us bitter, empty, because of the brokenness. But Jesus Christ, like Ruth, a refugee, came into our world, made sacrifices out of love so that we could repent and believe and recover new life. Now, the Spirit of God gives us this new life. 
So the praise of the Father in the name of Jesus and the power of the Holy Spirit, we have new life. Why? Because of the love of God. We don't earn this. We receive it by faith. Jesus Christ becomes the object of our faith. The eternal Almighty. And if He is the object of your faith, how strong is your hope? And why do you have it? John 3.16 says it. Because of one thing. For God so loved the world. Love. To know hope. To have hope. To experience hope. To get more hope. you got to know the love of God. you got to know the Savior of God. And then lastly, quickly, you got to know the plan of God. This last section of Scripture ties the entire Bible together. The entire Bible. Because something significant is happening through this refugee. The Naomi took the child, verse 16, and laid him on her lap and became his nurse. And the women of the neighborhood gave him the name, saying, A son has been born to Naomi. They named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of who? David. Now, why does that matter? Why does it matter so much that you go to verse 18, and now they're giving a whole list of names that we typically just don't read? We just see, oh, a bunch of people gave birth to a bunch of other people. Okay. But look at the last part, verse 22. Obed father Jesse and Jesse father David. Before the foundation of the world, God determined that he was going to bring the salvation of the world through the lineage of a refugee Moabite. So what are you talking about? All right, let's go to another part of your scripture that you never read. Let's go to Matthew chapter 1. Let's go to the section that you skip every year when it comes time to the reading plan. And it's time to read Matthew 1. And I've had different ones of you ask me, Pastor, why in the world do they waste space in the Bible listing all these names of all these people that we can barely pronounce? Why didn't they just say a bunch of people had a bunch of other people? Here's why, because this ties the entire Bible together. Matthew 1. Matthew 1, beginning in verse 2. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez, and Perez and Zerah by Tamar, and Perez the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Ram. And by now, most of you are starting to go to sleep. And Ram the father of Aminadab, and Aminadab the father of Nahashon, and Nahashon the father of Salmon, and Salmon the father of Boaz by Ram. And wait! What did we just read in chapter 4, the last part, was it verse 22? Call me crazy, but it says, Boaz, the father of Obed, by Ruth. Why is this important? I'll tell you why. And Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of David, the king. And who was it? Who was it that was through the line that Jesus Christ came? The line of David. Who is our Savior that came through the line of David? What's, what's his name? Jesus. This little book ties together the entire Bible. This little book where, where God is only spoken of, where he never speaks, under the providence of God, shows us this is how God works. God works through a nobody refugee from Moab. He had a plan for her life. And can I tell you something? He's got a plan for your life. 
If you're a disciple of Jesus, I, get, I want you to make sure you memorize this. This is Jeremiah 29, 11. You ought to know this. This is a promise for you. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans for welfare, not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. If Jesus Christ is the object of your faith, you have a future and a hope. Now, let me give you a warning. It won't always feel like that. You are going to have days in your life when you're going to say, God, are you joking? Am I being pumped by the Almighty? Is this, is this supposed to go on America's Funniest Videos? Because this isn't funny. Am I really supposed to be... Are these people really supposed to be my children? Are these people really supposed to be my parents? Is this really supposed to be my boss? Is this... Yeah, yeah. <laughs> See, it's simple. Is this really right? Sometimes it's not going to feel... Sometimes you're going to feel like, I'm not going where I'm supposed to go. I'm not... Life's not supposed to be like this. Um, Jason Baird and I were at a uh, worship pastor conference a couple weeks ago. We came into Nashville a certain way. I recognized it. But then it came time to leave, and there was a lot of crazy traffic. And so I did what any smart man would do. I listened to a woman. So I pulled out my phone, and I said, Woman, tell me how to get out of here. <laughs> and Siri began to talk. And, and uh, Baird was like, Oh, yeah, we're going right way. We're going right way. So we began to go. And I know a little bit about that. I remember a lot about that. And I was thinking... Where we're going is not good. We didn't, we're not going back the way we came, and now we're going into a part of town that is bad. And sure enough, we get in a part of town where, you know, people are living in tents under overpasses. And I'm thinking, we're going to have to fight our ways out of this. And I'm with a musician. And Barrett's sitting over there, he's thinking, we're going to have to fight our ways out, and I'm with a quarterback. Not a defensive tackle, I'm with a 50 quarterback who wore a red jersey so he wouldn't get hurt. How's this going to go? So neither of us were saying what we were really thinking, but we were wondering, is this really God's plan? Are we really supposed to be here? Well, guess what? The woman, as usual, was right. Yeah, stop. <laughs> it didn't feel like we should be there. We were right where we were supposed to be. All right, now, let me tell you something. You're not always going to feel like you're where you're supposed to be. And so the question becomes, well, how do I know I'm where I'm supposed to be? Okay. If Jesus Christ is your functional Savior and the object of your faith, no matter where you are, you're okay. And your hope will never die, though your body will. A lot of things will be taken away. So, here's what's happening with some of you. Jesus Christ is not your functional Savior, but because everything feels okay, you think you're okay. Now, others of you, Jesus Christ is your functional Savior. But it's not calm waters. There's, there's pain, there's challenges, there, there's hurt. This can't be right. Yes, it is. Your functional Savior has a plan for your life. And here's what we all want. 
We don't, we don't want pain. We don't want suffering. We don't want trials. Think about what we pray for. I'm guilty of this every morning. Lord, I don't want to suffer. I don't want to be confused. I don't want anything to be difficult. I want everybody to like me, and I want everyone I like for everything to go good. Anybody else pray stuff like that? I don't know about you, but God often says to me, uh, no. And here's what I know. He does that because He loves me. Because He knows that if I'm relying on Him as my functional Savior and not my circumstances, then my hope will never fail. God puts us in hard places so that our faith will be strong and so that our hope will be real. Some of you are living with fake hope because the object of your faith you can't keep. I want to convince you, I want to compel you to make Jesus Christ the object of your faith so that your hope will never fail. I want to challenge you this morning to come get on your knees and say, Lord, all to you I surrender. All to you I freely give. I will ever love and trust you in your presence. Smack in the middle of your will, I will daily live. I surrender. And you will have hope. Let's stand together. Father, we need you. There's no earthly thing that can save us. You alone are our Savior. You alone are the object that we can place our faith in that will actually truly save us. It is only your hope that comes through faith in your Son, O God, that will survive. Everything else will fail. So, Lord, we want more hope. So we need you, Lord Jesus to be our functional Savior. So I know there's some today who need to say, Lord, I have been I have been putting my faith in something good. Some of them may say, Lord, I've been putting my faith in something bad. But Lord, if our faith isn't in you, it doesn't matter what that object is, it's going to fail. We have friends, we have family, we have loved ones we care about, we're concerned about them. Lord, hear us as we come to pray and ask you to become the object of their faith so that they can have a hope that never fails. Give him your life. Give him your trust. Come and, come and pray as we see you.